A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to something very special indeed. This is Diplomacy, Britain versus America, 1838 to 1846. So if you were unaware, I'm now in the final year of my PhD. By September 2023, I'll hand in the dishonourable mess that is my dissertation, and I can finally stop talking about how hard it is to be an eternal student. The next nine months are going to be insane, so with that in mind... Over the Christmas break, I worked on a new mini-series rooted in part of my research, and I really think you're going to love it. In about two weeks, I wrote 12 episodes worth of content. So, yeah, here's the kicker, though. I have to preface this by saying that this series will be available exclusively to patrons who've supported me so faithfully and generously over the last three and a half years. Now, if you know me, you'll know that I always feel kind of icky asking you to pay for more content, but... If you've never supported the show before, you should know that until the 10th of February 2023, new signups for an annual Patreon membership can get 16% off, and this money will be funneled right into my college fund to pay for the final round of fees. In other words, now is by far the best time to sign up and support this show, because not only will you get this mini-series here, you'll also get access to 40 hours of extra content in the back catalogue, including Poland is Not Yet Lost, and my look at the 1956 Suez Crisis, among other events. For a one-off payment, you'll have all year to jump into these juicy extras. As you gorge on that extra content, you'll also enjoy ad-free episodes of our regular programming, and you'll also get that warm feeling inside that you can only get from becoming a history friend, or so I'm told. If you like the sound of these perks, or if this series today picks your interest, then I'd really appreciate your support. You know what to do. Click on the link in the description below, or head to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. So as I said, yes, this is the first episode in what will be a 12-part series, and obviously regular listeners, like your good self, are getting this for free to see if you like the look of it. And I hope you'll forgive me for these efforts at upselling while I try not to cringe out of my skin. But since this is the final stretch and this is the last time I'll be making these kinds of appeals, I try to tell myself it's not too bad. And I also am reassured because this series here examines a period of diplomatic history that I've long been fascinated by. And this podcast gives me the excuse to cover it 
in the detail it deserves, and I'm confident you'll love to learn more about it too. This first episode will give you a good taste of what's to come, and if you like that taste enough, I hope you'll consider signing up to hear how it all ends. No peeking in the history books. So, if you're still with me after all of that gross housekeeping, then let me set the scene. Our task for this mini-series is relatively straightforward. We'll be examining Anglo-American relations from roughly 1838 to 1846, and I say roughly because you know me and my tendency to follow tangents. Over 12 episodes, we'll analyse the diplomatic wiles of one Lord Palmerston, British Foreign Secretary extraordinaire, and his successor in the Foreign Office from 1842 onwards, the Earl of Aberdeen. We'll examine the different crises that brought a war between Britain and America to the forefront. We'll consider the context of each nation, as Britain struggled to maintain its status as the premier world power, and as America grappled with constitutional problems, dreams of expansion further north and west, and tensions with Mexico reaching a boiling point. Much as I love 17th century history, and, well, 18th century history, and pretty much all history from the word go, but during my studies I've been forced to reckon with the 19th century quite a bit, and I've developed a particular love for those understudied or underappreciated eras of history, just like this one. But what's so fascinating about British and American relations in the mid-19th century, you might be wondering? Well, allow me to address that. Anglo-American relations are too often viewed in the context of the special relationship of the 20th century, where London and Washington combined their resources in a grand English-speaking alliance to defeat the Central Powers in World War I and the Axis in World War II. Worthy though these histories are, the 19th century contained an arguably more interesting tale, that of a burgeoning American republic growing in power at home and influence abroad, clashing with its former colonial master, and carving out a curious niche in the minds of British policymakers. By the late 1830s, it was clear that the British couldn't reconquer the former 13 colonies. Not even the burning of Washington during the War of 1812 had eradicated the Republican experiment from the North American continent. At the same time, British economic interests became increasingly intertwined with the increasing production of American cotton growers, farmers and other industries, to the extent that a considerable lobby began to grow in London, advocating peace with the United States and a preservation of this lucrative arrangement. However, mutual though the interest was in maintaining an Anglo-American peace, there were plenty of reasons to count against this state of affairs by the 1830s, and to expect a third war between Britain and America to follow in the heels of the last dramatic affair. While it was accepted Britain couldn't conquer the US, they did possess the most powerful naval force in the world, and with the most prosperous American cities residing by the coast, a concentrated naval bombardment against these centres would massively injure American security and commerce. In a sense, then, a cautious period of mutual cooperation and suspicion set in, though it was remarkably fragile. Exactly how fragile was seen in the eruption of several crises between London and Washington during the 1830s and 40s. We've already seen what happened in 1861-62, when the United States, gripped by civil war, engineered a major incident when Confederate officials under the protection of the British Navy were seized at gunpoint on the high seas. The resulting Trent affair seemed to bring both sides to the brink of war, and Lord Palmerston, who was then Prime Minister, was only too happy to take advantage of Union weakness to leverage the British military against Washington. Palmerston got his proud triumph 
arguably the final experience of his long career, and the Americans returned to their civil war, bruised but determined to remember the British offence. But what happened before that incident, when Palmerston was in office only briefly, and wasn't Prime Minister but Foreign Secretary? What crises helped to pull the British and Americans further apart in previous decades, while also, paradoxically, codifying Anglo-American relations and settling issues in the North American border region, which had been outstanding since American independence? How did British and American populations react to this resumption of mutual hostility? Was the threat of war from either side genuine? And can it be said, considering the events of the 1830s and 40s, that Anglo-American diplomacy actually succeeded? But it wasn't just these fascinating questions that drew me to look at this period more closely. The period also comes recommended because of the language which the British and Americans constantly used. The national honour, it was said, would never allow excessive concessions to be granted to Washington, while American insults for so long tolerated would have to be met and satisfaction acquired if Britain's position was to be secure. In this mini-series, I'm going to trace this underrepresented period in Anglo-American history as I bring you to a fascinating but somewhat alien world. A world where British and American citizens didn't view each other as allies, but competitors. Where war hawks on either side pressed for the ultimate showdown. Where questions of national honour were closely intertwined with the treatment of citizens, rendering compromise painful and difficult. Where ambitions for American republicanism spooked the inhabitant Canadians and administrations back in London, where Washington feared that the foremost naval and economic power in the world might choose this moment to collect on its debts and settle the American question once and for all. Considering the depth of the crises, shockingly little blood was actually spilt, yet their settlements paved the way for a gradual normalisation in Anglo-American relations. A new period of codependence and mutual financial gain, of fixed boundaries and satisfaction, and of a growing acceptance in London that the American colossus could not now be stopped. To tell this story and fully understand its resonance with contemporaries, we'll be drawing on newspaper reports of both sides, parliamentary speeches of the major actors, and some of the most remarkable articles, books and other sources that exist on this forgotten period. Of particular note is a very readable book by Wilbur Jones called The American Problem in British Diplomacy, 1841-61, while a brilliant survey of Palmerston's policy during the period is provided in David Brown's eponymous biography. A more general survey of British foreign policy, complete with a huge index of invaluable foreign policy documents in the appendix, is provided by Kenneth Burns' The Foreign Policy of Victorian England. I should also talk about the honourable elephant in the room. My PhD research leads me to examine the question of national honour, which effectively made compromise more difficult on each side, and led to a host of other problems too. Now, you may be interested to know that I have a whopper episode in the pipeline planned, which will explore that issue more deeply, but a rehashing of my PhD research this series is certainly not. I'll be conducting a far deeper examination of the crisis period than my dissertation's word count allows, bringing forth the striking ambitions and visions of those that took part, the military objectives and capabilities of the actors, and the reaction in North America and the wider world to the possibility that these English-speaking powers might make a trilogy out of their famed struggles. 
Our story begins not in Britain or America, but in Canada, or as it was called in the mid-1830s, the colonies of Upper Canada, modern-day Ontario, and Lower Canada, in the predominantly French-speaking region of Quebec. When revolts against the stifling aristocratic establishment erupted in these two sensitive regions, it challenged American sympathisers to take part and liberate the continent from the British influence. This despite the fact that a Neutrality Act of 1818 forbade such interference in one another's affairs and recommended caution. For the British, on the other hand, the revolts were merely the latest blot on their imperial record and called for a swift, uncompromising suppression, lest Washington intervene or other European powers join the struggle to offer a repeat of the nightmare of the 1770s or 1810s. Without any further ado then, I will now take you to these troubled Canadian provinces in a gloomy December day in 1837. On the 5th of December 1837, the radical Scottish-Canadian politician and journalist William Lyon Mackenzie pronounced the establishment of the Republic of Canada on the unassuming Navy Island. Today, Navy Island is managed by Parks Canada as a national historic site, and it sits on the Niagara River, largely closed to the public. However, some signs of what happened here still remain. Much of the fortifications on the island date back to the War of 1812, when the river served as a key boundary region between New York and British North America, and William Mackenzie's supporters occupied these fortifications as they prepared themselves either for the beginning of a brave new nation or for a last stand against the mother country. In many respects, the act was a desperate one, and it followed the successive defeat of rebel forces by loyal Canadian armies. But the choice of Navy Island as a base made American interference more likely than before, even though Washington was officially neutral. Unsanctioned private American citizens did take it upon themselves to fight alongside the Canadian rebels, but Mackenzie's act of defiance could not inspire more than 600 men to join his cause by the middle of the month. Of most importance to the anxious American and British bystanders was the arrival of a privately owned American vessel on the scene, the Caroline, which brought more reinforcements, supplies and carried letters to and from the island, spreading word of Mackenzie's daring stand. By the end of December 1837, though, the British acted directly against this rebellious statelet, bombarding its defenders, storming the beaches, and, critically, destroying the Caroline, which caused the death of an American citizen. The Republic of Canada limped on into 1838, even electing its first president, but the moment had passed, and of greater importance than the question of what if, was what now? How would Washington respond to the offence of the burning of the Caroline, where the private property of its citizens had been destroyed and one person had even been killed? While calmer heads might have made the reasonable point that the Caroline had taken its chances and paid the price, calmer heads were in short supply in Anglo-American circles by the late 1830s. A major problem, which definitely did not help the situation, was the conflicting accounts of what exactly had happened. Several of these accounts were taken up by regional newspapers in New York. The Livingston Register urged local government to avenge national honour on the principle of blood for blood. Niles's Register reported that British soldiers had killed all but two or three of the 30 persons aboard and had sent the boat over the Niagara Falls. 
Anecdotal evidence and hearsay became canon, with various accounts increasing the temperature. The National Intelligencer warned that destruction of the Caroline had seriously endangered peace. Nearly 150 British and Canadian loyalists had boarded the boat, it said, and after giving three cheers for Queen Victoria, they killed 22 Americans. Several New York newspapers claimed that British soldiers had butchered everyone on board the Caroline. The New York Herald's correspondent in Buffalo declared, Surely war with England was unavoidable. As rumour and angst spread across the untamed border region, settlers in western New York began arming. Their newspapers carried military orders, and the frontier was inflamed. American President Martin Van Buren was caught in a difficult position. He couldn't ignore the deaths of American citizens by British hands, lest he wished his political position to collapse, but he couldn't pursue war with Britain either, so what to do? In May 1838, the President elected to send a protest to London, requesting compensation and an apology for British actions in the Caroline. By this tactic, Washington would acquire satisfaction, and tensions would hopefully be eased. Considering the continued embers of the Canadian Rebellion, which had the potential to ignite tensions further, we might have expected the British government to move quickly to defuse the situation and guarantee the maintenance of an uneasy but mostly profitable peace. But when the word of the confrontation reached London and Van Buren's protest landed on the desk of the Foreign Secretary, Lord Palmerston, a very different reaction occurred. Palmerston essentially ignored the American president's request, refusing to provide a reply, incredible though it sounds, until August 1841, more than three years since the original protest was sent. What was the reason for this delay? Despite the complications that could occur from cross-Atlantic mail, distance was not an excuse that Palmerston ever used. In fact, the foreign secretary didn't seem to care enough about the incident to offer any excuse. Essentially, Palmerston shrugged his shoulders and returned to more pressing concerns over France, the deterioration of the Ottoman Empire and increasing tensions with the Chinese. Painful though it would have been for President Van Buren's administration to admit it, the United States simply was not powerful enough or significant enough in the late 1830s for Palmerston to dedicate much time to it. The Foreign Secretary, in effect, had bigger fish to fry. Now, unsurprisingly, this policy of shoulder-shrugging didn't satisfy the President or his fellow Americans, but Palmerston may have been understating his feelings for effect, since the Prime Minister, Lord Melbourne, did approve reinforcements for Canada. By spring 1839, in fact, some 10,500 soldiers had been sent there, and though ostensibly these were present to ensure the suppression of the recent rebellions, their presence, accompanied by additional steamships on the Great Lakes, sent a message to Washington. Furthermore, although London didn't grant any satisfaction, it did approve of local efforts to keep the peace. There was no sense in contributing to the tensions, and by late 1839, with the Canadian rebels defeated and their supporters in secret American societies in decline, the mood along the border did improve. However, while war fever declined, the sense of wounded pride did not particularly in New York, and when a drunk British citizen, Alexander MacLeod, boasted openly about his role in the controversy, he was arrested by New Yorkers in September 1840. Now, it was British honour at stake, and Palmerston could be expected to take notice. 
But before we look at Palmerston's response, it would be useful and interesting to see what the British were up to in the late 1830s and what had Palmerston in particular so distracted. For sure, the Foreign Secretary had a lot on his plate by 1840. American affairs must have seemed very distant from the more pressing concerns of the apparently imminent Ottoman Empire's collapse. A stunningly successful revolt by the Sultan's Egyptian vassal dominated Turkish attention throughout the 1830s, but of greater concern to London was the interest shown in the conflict by the Russian Tsar. Although the 19th century is known as a period of Cold War between Britain and Russia, up until 1833, Palmerston seemed content to maintain the uneasy post-war alliance between the victorious powers. Yet, when the Russians involved themselves in the Ottoman plight, and when the rebellious Egyptians fought their way through the Levant, seizing Syria for their master, the delicate balance of power appeared to be in serious jeopardy. The Russian Tsar's efforts to take advantage of Ottoman weakness bore some striking fruit. In 1833, with the Treaty of Unkiar Skelesi, Russia acquired sufficient rights over the Dardanelles Straits and in the Black Sea and Circassia as to almost cast themselves as the overlord of the shaky Ottoman Empire. This treaty, in fact, you can mark it on your map as the beginning of a trend of Russophobia, which was only to end, arguably, with the Anglo-Russian Entente of 1907. In the interim, of course, the rhetoric intensified, and Britain appeared to be on a collision course with the Russian Empire for the preservation of its interests in the Ottoman Empire. Should Russia hasten the collapse of the Ottomans, there was no telling how Europe might react. Would there be a scramble for position and influence in the region, or would the Tsar simply acquire the majority of spoils for himself? These were pressing questions for Lord Melbourne's administration by the late 1830s, and a major outlier in their calculations was the behaviour of France. Although he's mostly focusing on Anglo-American relations in his book, The historian Wilbur Jones does do a good job of emphasising the centrality of France to Palmerston's policy, and there's certainly an argument to be made that the Foreign Secretary didn't act without first considering Britain's former foe. Of course, hindsight tells us that the era of Anglo-French antagonism was at an end, and that a new era of cooperation was about to begin, but this was far from clear at the time. British considerations were complicated by the uncomfortable fact of French support for the Egyptian rebels, which was viewed in London as a naked French effort to gain influence in the region at the expense of stability. In fact, by 1838, the French had suggested that Egyptian victories in Syria entitled them to a share of territory, and French interests in a satellite regime in Cairo, which would counteract British influence in the Mediterranean, moved many French officials to advocate a strong stand. Possession of Syria could empower the French to, theoretically, threaten British imperial routes along the Persian Gulf, and this was intolerable to Palmerston and his colleagues. A five-power accord was set up, involving Britain, Russia, Austria and Prussia, and supposedly with French support, but Paris continued to act as devil's advocate for a new Egyptian state, Radical solutions were proposed among Palmerston's colleagues, including closer cooperation with the Tsar to spook the French into backing down, and a visiting Russian official in London believed that together, Britain and Russia shall compel France to be honest in spite of herself, before adding in private to a Russian colleague, 
England is still not with us, but neither is she with France. England is a widow. To marry her, much skill and patience are needed, for she is a handsome and capricious woman. Yet, as Palmerston's biographer David Brown observed, the only certainty was that nothing was certain. This was certainly true for Palmerston. He kept his options open and his reliance on Russia was conditional. He made sure never to suggest that an Anglo-French understanding had been permanently ruined, while he also communicated to British diplomats abroad that London would defend Turkey alone if necessary. When his position unnerved his more Francophile peers in cabinet, Palmerston communicated his position on what would become known as the Eastern Question, or how to manage the collapse of the declining Ottoman Empire, by stating, This Turkish question is one of most extensive interest and importance to England than any other European question in which we have been engaged of late years, and no administration could well stand the blame which would be thrown upon it if by its neglect or indifference the projects of aggrandizement in the Levant, either of Russia or of France, were to be carried into accomplishment to the manifest detriment of England. By the end of March 1840, though, Palmerston was forced to conclude that the French remained uncooperative, although they remained one of the five powers charged with handling the crisis, and although France faced a war with Algeria at the same time, Palmerston found that the combined pressures on France made that nation less likely to compromise than he had anticipated. Thus, Palmerston communicated his views of France to a colleague at the time, believing it to be clear that... France has vast schemes of ambition along the whole of the southern coast of the Mediterranean, and that the separation of Egypt and Syria from the Ottoman Empire is part of her plan. That done, she would convert them into protected dependencies, and as England would cling to the Sultan, while France would take part with its Egyptian rival, she would always be able to outbid us in Egypt, and would be paramount in influence over the separate state." But such being the schemes of France, she will pursue them as far as she can and dares, whoever may be her ministers, and she will stop only when stoutly and firmly opposed. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. These musings are significant when you consider British moves to acquire a protectorate over Egypt in the early 1880s to predictable French chagrin. Yet Palmerston was not armed solely with stern warnings. His influence among several British newspapers was noteworthy, and the Morning Chronicle newspaper particularly was largely viewed in Britain as his mouthpiece. On this occasion, though, Palmerston found its editor was unsympathetic, so the Foreign Secretary instead harnessed the Allemagne Zeitung, an influential German paper, to communicate anti-Egyptian messages and present the revolt against Turkish authority as a threat to civilization. This use of foreign newspapers might surprise us, but we should bear this tool of the foreign secretary in mind, because it would be taken up again during a later confrontation with the Americans. Palmerston also faced continued opposition from his colleagues in cabinet, as Melbourne's Whig government contained several statesmen who wished for a closer Anglo-French accord, and didn't relish the idea of an Anglo-French war in so distant a theatre. As Palmerston anticipated, though, war would be unnecessary as long as Britain didn't blink in the face of French intransigence in Egypt. When even the Prime Minister suggested that he mollify his position, though, Palmerston threatened to resign, which would surely force the collapse of the British government. Writing to a colleague, Palmerston explained his stance in line with British prestige, arguing, If we had shrunk from pursuing a course separate from that of France, and if we had truckled to the French government on this occasion, we should henceforth justly have been considered as merely a second-rate power in Europe, held in leading strings by France and incapable of any manly and independent course of action. By alluding to British prestige and rank, euphemisms for British national honour and the respect granted to her by foreign powers, Palmerston found he could rally his colleagues to his side, as well as inspire confidence in the reading public, who were increasingly impressed with the profile of the dogged and proudly defiant foreign secretary. Palmerston's tenacity soon produced fruit. In July 1840, Britain, Russia, Austria and Prussia agreed to support Turkey's position, while granting possession of Syria and Egypt to Mehmed Ali, the leading Egyptian rebel, for the duration of his life. The Ottoman Empire would be preserved in its current form then, and the Russians were even persuaded to agree to guarantee the closing of the Dardanelles Straits during wartime, which would end their de facto control over that sensitive region which the Tsar had gained a few years before. Notable in their absence from these developments were the French, but Palmerston proceeded as though French feelings were of little concern to him. The terms of the aforementioned accord were kept secret from Paris, and French interests were not mentioned in the settlement. Not for the first time, Palmerston placed himself in his opponent's position, and calculated that the French wouldn't risk war with all of Europe for the sake of tenuous Egyptian gains. During the summer of 1840, this position was maintained, despite the nervous conversations of his colleagues who feared how the French might respond. Having been so clearly excluded from the treaty, the French could interpret these proceedings as an insult to their national honour, and if the French people were sufficiently encouraged, there was no telling what might happen next. Yet even so, Palmerston held his nerve. He proposed war plans to decimate French influence in Africa if the worst did occur, suggesting manoeuvres 
which would sever communications in Algeria, and insisting that fever and the Moors would soon dispose of the French troops in Africa. At the same time, Mehmed Ali and his rebellious Egyptian followers would be told that this was the best offer they could expect, and not to hold out for a miracle from Paris. Once again, Palmerston's patience and self-belief in the face of wavering colleagues wrought dividends. Mehmed Ali's forces were actually defeated in battle in October, and by November 1840, the French privately acknowledged that the Egyptian issue would not be used as a casus belli. Surveying his diplomatic successes by the end of 1840, Palmerston could conclude with justifiable satisfaction that We grappled with Russia last year in Asia, and having beaten her, we have got her for a civil and for the present well-conducted friend. We have now grappled with France and have beaten her, and she will likewise be well-behaved for some little time to come. Since Parliament was out of session, Palmerston believed we shall have a capital story to tell about external affairs when Parliament meets in early 1841. Such was the sense of triumph that Palmerston's wife could even find it. A great pleasure to see all her enemies floundering in the mud and not knowing how to get on their legs again. She added that the changing narratives of various newspapers, once hostile to Palmerston's policy but now broadly sympathetic, only places you on a higher pinnacle of glory. Now, having dealt a blow to French pride, maintained a European agreement to support the Ottoman Sultan, and coerced the Russians into withdrawing from their control over the Straits, Palmerston had good reason to feel positive about the coming session of Parliament. However, he could not have known that at that very moment, Alexander MacLeod had been identified by a vengeful New York populace as the culprit responsible for the destruction of the Caroline and the national insult this entailed. And so, by the time Parliament opened in February 1841, Palmerston found that much of his successes in the East had been forgotten, and a new crisis, this one with the United States, had been brought to the forefront. Worse for the Foreign Secretary was the arguably fair charge that by his indelicate handling of American pride, Palmerston had exacerbated the wound and facilitated this latest crisis in Anglo-American relations. Now, we'll examine how Palmerston dealt with this crisis in the next episode, as he confronted several issues, including the long-disputed border region, the question of legality, national honour, and the nightmare of a two-front war with France and the United States. Because if you're wondering why I spent so much time talking about France, you should know that France features quite heavily in this series, as a kind of background fear that the British tended to have, of a repeat of the worst scenario where the French and Americans had teamed up against them. Anyway, if you enjoyed this episode and you're curious to see where the story goes next, then please track down the sources I mentioned in the introduction. And if you'd like to nerd out with me further as we examine these events together, then please consider supporting this show, and by so doing, supporting my quest to become Dr. Zack. And again, I should mention, you can get 16% off an annual Patreon membership until the 10th of February if you sign up now. Which means that for a once-off payment, this mini-series and 40 hours of additional content accompanied by ad-free episodes of our 30 Years War series will be yours as well. Really, it's the best deal since the one that Nigerian Prince offered you the other day, except this one's for real and I promise to make it worth your while. But if money is tight, and I know the feeling, trust me, I hope you'll forgive these pleas, and listen again as I thank you so much for your continued moral support, 
while I face perhaps the busiest period of my life so far. Oh boy, but whatever happens guys, I am of course Zach, and this has been the first episode of Diplomacy, Britain versus America. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 